So let's uh, hear God's word to us today. Just the context for this is Jesus is journeying out of Jerusalem, out of the walled city, away from the upstairs room where he's just had Passover meal with his disciples and heading across the Kidron Valley and will end up in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is just on the other side of the Kidron Valley. And therefore, in all likelihood, has passed out of the walled city. And it may well be that having seen a vine uh, or a vineyard, or uh, yeah, probably it would be a, a vineyard rather than a big hillside plantation, which you might see in southern Europe now. Perhaps that was the context of the inspiration for this teaching from verse 1 then. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit He prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Amen. I invited you to think about your love language. And of course, uh, Gary Chapman, I remember his name, Gary Chapman's book was written in the context of, of love between uh, principally between couples, romantic love, relationship love. 
but actually it doesn't really need to be confined to that because it's simply a measure of the way in which either we have learned or experienced love as, uh, or the way that we've learned to experience love from other people. And so, for some people, it will be, uh, it will be the, 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 the time spent, that someone just giving you the time and the focus and the uh, opportunity to be heard or listened to or just to be in uh, pleasant company and companionable silence even can be a sign that you want to be with that person. Or the tasks, the things that somebody does for you are a sign that they're willing to put the effort in because they consider you worthy of the effort, the job that needed done. Or, of course, it's touch, and, and some people are naturally uh, touchy-feely people. Some people are naturally comfortable with touch or being touched, and other people less so. And again, that in all likelihood will go back to what your earliest experiences were, whether you learned to feel comfortable around physical touch or that wasn't something that was part of your childhood. And probably depending, well, I, I can't generalize, but I suspect that the older and more Scottish you are, the more your experience of not knowing touch, uh, because certainly there was a, a whole generational thing where that just didn't feature all that much. We're a much more touchy-feely society now than we used to be. Or is it the, the treasures that when somebody takes the time to select a gift for you, not just necessarily because it's Christmas or your birthday, although that's not to exclude those, but if somebody gives you something just because I saw this and I thought of you. And so I, I made the investment I, I suffered the loss of cash or whatever. I went out of the way, gave myself the trouble to get this for you. Or is it the talk, the words that somebody took the time to say because we can very easily take one another for granted. And often we can very easily be drawn into uh, a world that is cynical, increasingly so sadly, cynical, mocking, critical, judgmental. There's no shortage of negative words around. Just, you know, fire up, uh, fire up uh, Facebook or Twitter or any of the social media uh, devices, uh, or, and, and you will find that people find it remarkably easy to say the negative thing. And so, when we think about uh, about love and about these dimensions of love, uh, we can easily go beyond the romantic love. Jesus, in this uh, beautiful passage, which we, the first part of which we explored last week, thinking about what it means to be connected to the vine, what it means to be tended by the gardener what it means actually to be those whose calling is to allow God to do what it is He wants to do, which is to produce the fruit of His 
heart, of His nature, of His purpose, of His kingdom in and through your life. And so, the first uh, eight verses that we looked at talk uh, mostly about the connectedness. And then it talks, Jesus talks about producing much fruit. And then from verse 9 on, it shifts, and it's as if Jesus moves away from the allegory, moves away from the imagery, and unpacks it more explicitly. Because he's still using the language of connection. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The gardener plants the vine, and the vine produces branches, and the branches bear the fruit. And so he's gone from the image to the specific. That his expectation at the heart of everything that he's doing is that we be bearers of his love. Now, he doesn't unpack love in terms of these five T's, and, and there are other ways besides. It's not the last word by any manner or means. But Jesus emphasis in both halves of this are on putting yourself in the place, in the connection, in the relationship, tending, nurturing, cultivating the relationship so that there's an unbroken connection which allows God's love to flow and the fruit and the fruitfulness. I was, re- I was away this past week on Harris, every now and again, me and some friends go for a little retreat, and we, uh, Ruth and I have friends on Harris who have a house, and they weren't using it, and very kindly said we could use it, which was fantastic. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Harris. Harris is the southern half of the Isle of Lewis and Harris on the Outer Hebrides. It's the most uh, northwesterly part, not the most northerly, but the most northwesterly part of the British Isles. And so it's pretty remote, uh, and it took us uh, longer than we expected to get there because the day that we went, there was only one ferry, uh, and it left at 6.15 in the evening instead of the usual uh, 2 o'clock. It's normally a kind of 2 o'clock ferry. We didn't get there. wasn't going to be a ferry till 6.15 because of wind and, and weather and so on. And that ferry, which normally goes direct to Tarbert in Harris and takes two hours to cross from Sky, from Oregon Sky, was, was doing a triangular journey. So it was going to Loch Maddy on North Uist first, which takes two hours, and then was going to Tarbert, which takes another two hours. So it was a four-hour journey. So we, we got into Tarbert about quarter past 10 on Monday night but that's okay. And then we got to the house, and the house was uh, lovely, visited it before, but then discovered uh, that, uh, and, and happily so probably, but it took a day to get used to it, that there was absolutely zero mobile signal for any of the guys, none of us, the matter what network we were on, there was no mobile signal. And because our friends are not staying in the house at the moment, they're not uh, paying a phone contract, so there was no Wi-Fi. So no Wi-Fi and no mobile signal, which for some people would be torture, and for other people would be bliss. But either way, it probably took a day or two to get used to, and actually, well, not even a day or two, probably a few hours to realize that you had to not be on your phone. You had to not be 
on a device. If you had a question, you could not check Mr. Google for the answer. If you wanted to find something out, too bad. And it was an interesting shift to be out of the place where we could... You okay, Donald? You get sore leg. It's okay. Just get cramp. <laughs> to be out of the place where you're in contact with other people. And the interesting phenomenon was that when we would then drive back into Tarbert, or if we went up to the car park of the Episcopal Church, uh, just outside Tarbert, which is a little hut on a hill, you could get signal there. And so you're driving along, and then all of a sudden, my phone just started going crazy with texts and messages, and it was pinging and buzzing and zapping and just everything from a day or whatever coming in all at once. It was beautiful to be in a remote, beautiful place where you were incommunicado. And it was an interesting phenomenon just to reflect on that moment when you come into the place of signal again. Now, I could imagine you sitting there thinking, oh, that must have been awful. You know, suddenly you're reminded that you're connected to the world, having, having been in this remote idyll where the world can do what it likes because you don't know and you're completely disconnected from it. And you're absolutely right. And all the texts start coming in and suddenly I'm answering texts and questions and, and dealing with things and saying, if you text me back, I won't get it for a day or something like that. But I was reflecting on that experience in the connection with this passage and thinking about what it means to remain in me, what it means to be outside of the connection zone, and what it means to be in the connection zone. Because there is a very general sense in which God is love, and He loves all that He has made. We're all Jock Tamsin's bairns, as the saying goes. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I don't think he's talking here about remaining in my love in the sense that, uh, that it's possible to be outside of the love of God and that he is love and a source. But it did occur to me, reflecting, and as nice as it was to be away from mobile phones and all the rest of it, it did occur to me that in life it's possible to be outside and inside the zone of God's love. It's entirely possible, and this is, the, in a sense, the flip of, of escaping to the rural idyll. Because the flip is that you can come back to the city with all its noise and its voices and its distractions. You can come back to the busyness and the activity. You can come back to the place of people and much to do and things to think about and take yourself, if you're not careful, out of the place of signal. <laughs> take yourself out of the place of remaining in God's love. It's, it's the converse. Now, it doesn't mean that you can only experience the love or the presence of God if you go to some island retreat. <laughs> But it does present us with the challenge of what does it mean to do what Jesus is saying here, to remain in the place of His 
love. In a world of distraction, where phones are pinging and buzzing, where we have to bounce between half a dozen different social media platforms to stay in touch, to stay connected, to see what's going on, what are people saying, what's the reaction. And so at a horizontal level, we can be absolutely overwhelmed with the white noise of 21st century living. And it's not always white. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. And it's probably uh, crude and simplistic, I know, to transfer those five T's to God's relationship with us. But we can recognize that God is willing to give us time. There is time. He has time for us. He has time to hear us. He has time for us. He has time to listen to us any time we care. And so, the flip side, therefore, is the question which we all have to wrestle with, what time do we have for Him? What time do we have for God? Assuming that God embraces every facet of every personality because we're each of us made in the image of God, let's just assume, therefore, that God experiences love in all of these ways as we do to one extent or another. And that God has demonstrated His love for us, His love for us in this, that Jesus came and endured the cross. He did something. He did something radical. He did something dramatic. He did something extreme. He did something amazing in order that we might understand the extent of His love. God's love is not just a word or sentiment or expression, but it's action. And so God, if you like, did this task of tasks upon the cross, going there without sin in the person of Jesus, although Jesus had taken on sinful human, uh, human nature and carried it to the cross, and there endured the cross and its shame. And then there is a touch, if you like. Now, how does God touch us? Well, I wouldn't presume to answer that for you, because you will have your own experiences of encounter. Some people even have had a sense of, of being physically touched, but that's a fairly rare thing. I remember years ago being in uh, uh, the little chapel at New College. There's a little student's chapel when I was studying at New College, which is the theology faculty of Edinburgh University where I did my training. And I used to go down there and pray and read and I was in there once, and there was a, a little old lady came in who was a late entrance to, entrant to the ministry, 
and she was, uh, she probably, I think she only had about maybe 10 years. She was that sort of last in before the, the kind of age cutoff. And she was in my year. And uh, I was kneeling down praying, and uh, I was aware that, that this lady came in. I can't remember her name now. doesn't matter. But aware that, that she came in. And I just had this overwhelming sense. She went to pray in a different part of the chapel. And I just had this overwhelming sense that she was going to lay her hand on me. Uh, and I had absolutely no grounds for that whatsoever. We didn't even look at one another. And, and I heard her get up to go, and she walked past, and she placed her hand on my head. And she left it there for a moment. She said nothing. I said nothing. And she took it off, and she went out of the chapel. It was a strange moment. It was a strange moment where she obviously felt from God that she had to do that. And God told me in some way that I can't explain to you that that was going to happen. And it was a minute little moment. But it was a moment where I felt not just that she touched me, but that God touched me. Now, that was unique and personal to me, but maybe many of you have had experiences like that. Maybe you haven't. And don't think, well, because I've never really had an experience of being touched by God in a way that, that I can, uh, you know, uh, identify. Don't take that negatively as saying that God doesn't love you or that, you know, God communicates with each of us in different ways. But sometimes this touch comes in a moment of stillness that goes beyond stillness. Sometimes this touch is the touch of another person, like I've just described. Sometimes his touch comes in a, a way in a set of circumstances that we find hard to explain to anybody else why that would be God, but we know that it was. But I suppose then the question is, how do we touch God? Do we just check in with God on a Sunday? giving God the nod, as I once heard somebody describe it. Church on Sunday can just be giving God the nod as we go on with the rest of our week. How do we reach out and touch, hold on to, put our hand in the hand of the Savior? Or what about treasures? And again, we hopefully can look and see the ways in which God has provided for our needs. And often that's just in the ordinary business, and sometimes that is in the business of a unique and special provision. Money that uh, was provided unexpectedly, or a, a gift or an opportunity for me, the, the Jeeve, my friend, just popped up in the cafe one day, and we got chatting. I hadn't seen him for ages. And we'd already planned to go up to Harris, and, and uh, uh, I mentioned that we were going to be going up. So I said, it'll be nice to uh, see his wife, Fiona. Jeeve works down, in, in, down south. I said, oh, neither of us are there just now. The house is empty, but if you'd like to use it, then you can. So I consider that a gift from God. And sometimes we don't take stock of what is it that God has given me? 
what are the things or the people or the provision I take for granted that actually are the hand of God in my life. The nature of hospitality in Glasgow City Mission, for instance, is the nature of people giving in the name of Jesus to make sure that even at the level of uh, food or support or provision, people have access. And there are so many other caring agencies in and around the city. But the faith-based ones, the ones that are overtly Christian, are doing it to say, God blesses you with material help or provision as well as with love and kindness. But then what do we give to God of our treasures? I know I've made this crude comparison before, but if your weekly giving to God is less than your weekly giving to Starbucks, you need to examine your discipleship. Because God calls us to be good stewards of what He's given. And so that means giving our treasures, giving our treasures. And that's not just what we put in the offering box. It might be how we help somebody else. It's whatever we do or give sacrificially or selflessly to God is a tangible expression of our love for Him. You see, love that's just words and songs can be so cheap and easy And what about talk? Do we talk to Him? Because He speaks to us glorious promises. Even here, Jesus speaks to His disciples, and through John's gospel, speaks then to us in saying, you're not servants, you're friends. You're friends, dearly loved friends. The whole of the Bible is a word of affirmation. Yes, there are passages that are about warning and correction and rebuke, but a father disciplines the children that he loves. And so God speaks to us through His Word and through those that speak His Word into our lives because He wants to speak words of hope, words of forgiveness, words of encouragement, words of affirmation, words Yes, of rebuke and warning and challenge that call us to repentance and change. But all of it, He speaks with a view to communicating His love for us. And God calls us to speak and to sing back to Him, to pray, to worship, and to speak out to Him our love for Him, His worth to us. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. So, remaining in the love of the Father is about engaging in these ways. It's about looking to see what the criteria are of remaining in His love. Faith is one of the connectors, if you like. You remain in His love, and you remain in the place of His love by faith. Because without faith we have, there is no connection. And we do not believe that we are connected to Him and, and He to us. 
And so the bedrock of the connection that Jesus is speaking about here, about remaining in His love, is first of all, believing in His love. Believing in His love. Believing in His love for you and what He has done and said, given His touch. And so, foundational to who we are is that we believe in a God who loves us, don't we? And yes, we can affirm that and, and sing it and say it, but, but it's a bigger challenge to believe it, that we are loved by God. And it can be a, a journey of some time before we actually get to the place of daring to believe that God is nice and He likes me. And the connection of love is nurtured in that place of prayer. So faith, yes, but prayer, stillness, invitation, waiting, of being in the place where we may receive the love of God because we are the branches. We are the ones who need the sap of the love that flows through the vine from the Father who is the source through Jesus, the vine, the Son, to us, the branches, to bear fruit. Remain in my love. I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. And for Jesus, then, that was faith, that was prayer, that was obedience or submission. Those are not very popular words in our world today. Obedience and submission, they strike a note of oppression or repression, of depriving me or denying me my rights or my autonomy, my independence, what I want and have the right to get. And yet the call of God is not just to receive the good stuff, but is also then to obey, to have the heart that submits and says, I will not do what my instincts might tell me to do. I will submit instead to what the Father would have me do. I was reading a little book, it's a lovely little book, very, very thin little book by a guy called Stephen Hill called Creating a Shape for Life to Flow. And the central thesis is that, that God who is love, God who is spirit, as it says in John 4, is looking for vessels that are shaped in such a way that He can fill them and so God's intention is that we, our lives, are, are created with a capacity that in any and every place and way, situation and circumstance, we might be vessels that contain the love of God, that we might form of our lives and in our lives a shape that allows life to flow. And so part of that then is having a heart that is in the same place of submission or obedience, readiness to serve, preparedness to deny what I want if it's going to conflict with 
the gospel of love. And above all, to love, to let God love through us. And it's the hardest thing of all. We read this passage and we think it sounds like a beautiful passage because it talks all about God's love, His love for us, and remaining in His love. Love, love, love. All you need is love. We love the language. But the calling is tough. The calling is hard. Because yes, we can easily identify the T that will uh, flick our switch, affirm to us that we are loved. Well, how then do we do that for others? Our natural selfish instinct has us looking out for ourselves and what we need or want. And yet God's call to us is to remain connected so that the love will flow. The jury is out on uh, Harry and Meghan and what's going to happen with all of that. But it serves as a little illustration because if the connection to royal belonging or royal duties, however the thing's going to pan out, is, is diminished, weakened, or broken, then the effectiveness will as well. There will not be the, the opportunities to do the things that they would do as, as senior royals. And I'm not commenting one way or another. The whole thing's uh, up in the air. But Jesus says, I have chosen you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I don't call you servants, I call you friends. I chose you to be my friends, to bear my fruit, to be part of my family, to be connected to royalty. But the connection to royalty means then that you have acts of service to do. It means then that you have expressions of love where it flows through, which means that the, the royal brand, the royal mark, not of the royal family, but of King Jesus is seen in your life, who you are and how you conduct yourself. You're not a servant in the royal household. You're a friend. You're an adopted son, an adopted daughter, which means that who you are and how you carry yourself has to carry that royal touch. And it means that you are sent on royal duties every day. You don't have to cut too many ribbons, probably. You don't have to unveil too many plaques, but you certainly do go as an ambassador of King Jesus of the mission of God's love, expressing that love through those five T's to Him and to other people. So what does it mean for you to focus on being chosen, to being called a friend and not just a servant, to have your life uh, affirmed and your story retold so that everything that you have ever believed about yourself from the words or the voices of other people is then challenged and changed because God says, actually, I'm seeing something different about you now. And what I say about you is that I forgive you, that I love you and call you, that I want to rewrite your story and whatever other people may have said or left unsaid about your life, I say something different 
And I say it to the extent if you need evidence, I say it in a cross. I say it with my life. I say it with my blood and my toil. I say it with the pain I endure that I love you and I'm for you. That whatever other people have said, I forgive you and I want to change you. That I can make you a branch in my vine and I can cause you to bear fruit and be fruitful. God calls us into his royal service. And he calls us to remain in him, because only by remaining in him, only by allowing him to manifest through your life his love, will the world be able to see that in all the confusion, in all of the negative trawling, in all of the uh, uncertainty, in all of the cynical voices, and amongst all of the bad stuff that this world is full of, people are looking to see hope. They're looking to see something different, something that's not just words, not just giving God the nod on a Sunday, but something which, like a stick of rock, goes all the way through who you are, how you live. I don't know which of the five T's you prefer, But let me leave you with a question that if you like that one for you, what does it look like for you even to start by giving that one back to God?